Hey, I'm Sachin. And I'm Adam. We interview the best leaders from around the world and unpack their failures, successes, and ideas they're passionate about. We do this because we think the best learnings in life don't come from a textbook. Rather, they come from open and personal conversations. Thanks for joining in and enjoy the episode. This week, we had a really special episode because Zark is the first startup that Sachin and I have ever invested in. So today, we dive deep into Africa, the founding story of Zark, and as you might tell, we got a little bit emotional at the end because we saw just how committed Kayvan is to his business. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please like, subscribe, send it to a friend, and leave a review on iTunes. Thanks. Enjoy. We're live and welcome back to the show. So today we have an extremely special guest. And I know we say this a lot, but in a second, you guys are going to see why Kayvan is really special to me and Adam. So Kevin is actually the founder of um, a fintech company based in Uganda, which means Sachin invested in and which was our first ever angel investment. So for those of you that don't actually know what that means, it means investing money directly into a startup. And so what does Ark basically do is that they're doing uh, lending on a digital platform. So they'd lend um, money to people to purchase um, basically motorbikes, um, fuel, smartphone loans, and they're trying to create essentially a full stack digital bank in Africa. So it's an area that we're really excited about and we're very keen to dive into some of the thematics of fintech, investing in Africa, and a bit about Kaven's story as well. So welcome onto the show, Kaven. Hey, thanks so much, Sachin and Adam. Sachin and Adam, really great to be here with you guys. Awesome. awesome. And um, Kaven, you're joining us from Kampala, is that correct? Yeah, so I, I'm uh, based out here in, in Kampala, Uganda with, uh, with, with most of the team. And um, uh, yeah, I, I had just been in the, the US for a couple of months to catch up with family, uh, but, but good to be back home over here. Awesome. And I, I think Uganda holds a very special place in my, ha- my heart. A lot of people don't actually know this, but my family was born in Uganda. Um, so my mom and grandparents were there for a long time. And we, we went back probably two, three years ago to see where they were born, where they grew up. Um, they were kicked out by a, a dictator called Idi Amin, and then they came to Australia. So Uganda is a beautiful country, beautiful people. Um, and I'm very jealous that you're not in lockdown over there. <laughs> <laughs> but Kevin, we, um, we love to start off our podcast by asking our guests a story or anecdote. But, but today we thought we'd flip it and ask you, what drives you? What motivates you today? And why are you sitting in Uganda right now? Yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, thanks so much, Sachin. So, um, you know, why, why, why I'm personally driven to, to do this, uh, a bit about myself. I, I was born in, in the U.S. To, to parents who immigrated from Bangladesh. And uh, I, I feel that I was extraordinarily lucky to, to have that golden ticket to, you know, be able to go to American schools. I have a lot of opportunities there that I, I, I wouldn't have had in my ancestral homeland. And um, uh, so by, by uh, traveling to Bangladesh frequently when, when we were a kid, my, my parents always tried to ingrain in us that uh, we, we were very lucky to, to have these opportunities to, to study abroad and, and to work abroad and, and many other people didn't have this chance. And um, uh, so that, that was how I got interested in, in development economics and, and thinking about you know, what, what makes some countries rich and, and others poor and how can we bridge that gap and, and, and bring opportunities to the places where it's needed the most. Um, so. Uh, when, when I was in, in university, I got really interested in, in microfinance, which was first pioneered at a large scale in, in Bangladesh. So uh, I, I, I went out there a few times to, to intern with BRAC and, and Grameen Bank, two of the big uh, microfinance institutions in the, the country. And uh, I, I had the chance to, to go deep into the villages and um, you know, meet, meet face-to-face with uh, uh, many of their, their women borrowers and, and uh, they had the chance to talk to them, understand how did the loans impact their lives, um, you know, what, what uh, qualms or, or reservations do they have with the system? Where, what are some of the things that could be improved? And um, uh, at the same time, I, I, I learned about uh, mobile money and, and, and PESA in, in East Africa, uh, which was just starting to take off around that time. And um, I, so I, I, I was sensing, you know, that there could be some way to use mobile technology to, to reinvent microfinance, to do things in, in a better way with more efficiency, without you know always having to meet people face to face just to make payments or to do other things like apply for a loan, and so um, uh, you know what 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 drove me personally to to do this company is that um, I I feel that there's a chance here to 
to make money while also doing good. Um, you know, th th there's there's many ways to to become uh, uh, rich and successful, but but here I saw a unique opportunity to to do it by by also sharing that wealth with with others and and to, to develop a country rather than uh, just an individual. Yeah, that's beautiful to hear that motivation of um obviously building wealth, but also doing good with it. And I'd love to dive into a bit of your experience sort of working with Grameen and those microfinance sort of processes. What did you find were some of the advantages of that model? What was successful about them? How were they sort of succeeding? And then what were some of the downfalls of them and things that you felt like you wanted to improve in the microfinance sphere? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I, I, I think some of the incredible things that the, the MFIs in Bangladesh have done is to bring some basic level of financial infrastructure to every corner of the country. I, I mean, even in villages where you just find a few hundred or a few thousand people, uh, these have always been ignored by the big commercial banks, but you'll, you'll still find uh, some branches of, of microfinance companies there. And uh, the other really um, groundbreaking, groundbreaking thing they did was to be able to underwrite people who, who don't uh, have titled assets. So, you know, their primary customers are, are people living in small villages who, who don't have proper land titles, which are not registered in the Ministry of Lands. Um, you know, the, the only assets they might have are, are like cows and, and chickens, but they, they have found a way to, to, to still price that risk and, and, and uh, get loans to perform by, by getting people to, to guarantee each other, by forming groups where, uh, you know, you, you, you need uh, to be a respected member of your community as, as a reliable and trustworthy person in order for you, uh, for you to access a, a loan. So, um, uh, yeah, the, the, those are some of the areas where I, I think it has really uh, succeeded. Yeah. And, Kevin, pulling it back to something you said earlier, what makes some countries rich and some countries poor? I would love to dive into that for a second because I think all of our audience would have moments when they watch the news, they read an article and they think about the immense privilege we have living in Australia. There's so many people around the world who can't afford food, who can't afford water, uh, sorry, can't afford or don't have access to clean water or education. What, what do you think with your experience of working so far, what do you think that, what is the answer to that? What makes some countries poor and some countries richer? Oh man, it, it's a it's a huge question. If if I really knew the answer, I would be a trillionaire. Um, <laughs> um, uh, it, it it is something that I've studied for for years, and I, I I can't say that I know conclusively, just because like every, every country is is so different. But there there are a few factors that I think are are pretty important. Um, you know, one one is the the strength of of institutions in in a particular country. Um, you know, they're they're. Uh, Okay, like, like if we look at the history of colonialism in, in, in Africa, uh, we, there, there's actually a lot of impact based on uh, which country colonized uh, that, 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 that part of Africa. Um, because uh, like the differences between British common law and, and French law and, and other types of European law, they, they encourage and discourage investment to different extent. And they, they also protect and, and not protect property rights to different extents. So, uh, you know, like one, one, one trend that I've seen in, in uh, like British common law countries is, is uh, they, they tend to have a, a bit more security around property rights. So that makes it easier for people to accumulate assets and wealth, and it gives them the confidence to make investments in their business because they're, they're sure that it, it's not gonna be taken away by the, the government. Um, you know, so that, that, that's, that's one factor. Um, there, there is also a, a, a lot of luck involved. Um, so, uh, like, if, if you look within Africa, all of the countries that are that are landlocked, they have significantly lower growth rates than uh, any country that has access to the to the sea, so because they're able to import goods much more cheaply, which uh, you know encourages different types of industries to flourish based on the available inputs. So, you know, some of these things are historical accidents, like like you know the, the way the the lines were were drawn by by uh, colonialists when they were dividing up countries. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I mean, in, in, in today's world, what, what, the, I, what, what, what uh, many developing countries are probably looking for is, is the, the, the way forward, right? And, and I think one very promising thing about East Africa has, has been um, the, 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 the way we have seen like technologies leapfrog uh, over some of the outdated technologies in the West. So for example, um, uh, here living in, in Uganda, I'm able to send money to another person in, in seconds, the, the transaction clears instantaneously through mobile money, whereas in the US, where which is the financial capital of the world, um, 
uh, it, it can take hours for a wire transfer to clear because some of those payment technologies were built in the 60s and the 70s and, and, and it's too expensive or complex to overhaul them now. Whereas here in, in East Africa, where we didn't have those you know, widespread bank accounts and landline telephones and a lot of relics of the past, uh, they had the chance to reinvent things the, the right way. Yeah, that's really fascinating how some countries leapfrog innovation. It's a model that China really pursued um, with credit because they didn't really go for that credit card phase and instead they went straight to QR codes. So I'd love to focus on that a little bit as well. Why do you think there was that leapfrogging of growth in Africa particularly? Um, what enabled things like M-Pasa um, and mobile money to really um, surface up and become extremely popular amongst the population? Yeah, for sure. Um... So, um, uh, okay, we, 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 can, we can look at uh, mobile technology and mobile money as, as an example. Um, so uh, in, in the Western world, we, we had landlines from the early 1900s, right? And, and so that, that was already ingrained in society and, and economy and all that. But, um, you know, for whatever reason, it, it was too expensive to, to build the, uh, all of that infrastructure here. And, and it was actually easier to just build cell phone towers that, that can broadcast signals over a wide distance without having to put up wiring in, in these remote villages where, where the majority of people live. And so, so you know, that's what made uh, mobile phones really accessible. And, 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 and also when um, the handset manufacturers were realizing that, that uh, they, they, they could break into much more of the developing world market if they had, you know, cheaper handsets. So they, they started making cheaper and cheaper phones that were actually accessible to people. Then there were other innovations like um, being able to buy airtime in, in very, very small chunks rather than having to pay like, like a monthly subscription of $50 or $100. So, you know, by, by just buying a phone calls 10 cents, 50 cents at a time, that, that actually made it uh, accessible to, to people. Um, and so, uh, you know, why, why, why has mobile money become so, so popular here? I, I, I think it's because um, there, there was very little adoption of the formal financial system. I, I, I mean, even up to today, like uh, something like less than 5% of, of Ugandans have a, a bank account. And uh, wow. it, it, it's, um, you know, I, 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 I can share a funny story, actually. Um, on, my, on my first trip to Uganda, I, I was uh, volunteering with this group, Engineers Without Borders, and we were doing this uh, project with smallholder farmers in, in eastern Uganda. And... Uh, so I, I came with this idea that I, I really wanted to encourage farmers to save money so that they could be prepared for any kind of emergency so that they don't have to borrow at a high interest rate to get out of a bad situation. So uh, I, I went to this group of farmers and I said that uh, if, if you open a bank account and, and put $50 in it, I'll put $50 of my own money uh, and, and, and match it just to encourage you to have this habit of, of saving. So the, the farmers, they sat and talked about it, and then they, they told me that uh, you know, we, we really appreciate your offer, but uh, we see no value in having a bank account. And I, I said, why? They said that um, if, if we have a bank account, it means that we have to go all the way to town to withdraw money, which means I have to pay transport, right? Then when, when I reach town, maybe the bank is closed because I, I don't know what all of the holidays are, or sometimes they close early. So I, I could have wasted the trip. Then if I'm withdrawing a large amount of money, maybe I'll have to pay a bribe to the teller to, to, to get my, my money out. Um, so they, they said that it's too expensive to have a bank account. They said that if I really wanted to help them, I should buy pigs for them. And so why, why, why do they want pigs? Because pigs uh, are, are right there in front of your house. You don't have to go to town to withdraw them, right? They're always accessible. Uh, they eat grass and they grow fatter every day, which means that they appreciate instead of keeping your money in the bank account where it, it, it earns 0% interest. And uh, any day of the week, if you really need to, to liquidate the pig, you can find someone to, to buy it, uh, it, even within your village. You don't have to spend fuel or transportation. So they, they said that, um, and, and so that, that, that's how I learned that uh, pigs are more liquid than cash in Uganda. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd never be hearing those words. <laughs> <laughs> and and just to paint a bit of color around this, um, Kevin, when you say that, it sounds like a bit of a niche example, but there's actually 2.5 billion people around the world who are unbanked and don't have access to credit. And I think when I first heard about this problem, it's easy to say, okay, they don't have access to credit, so what? They can still save save money and you know stuff it under their mattress or whatever the equivalent is. But I think it's important mm -hmm. to realize that in, in Australia, I don't think, I would suggest that 95% of people wouldn't be able to afford a home without access to credit. The average house price here is above a million dollars. Without access to credit, they wouldn't be able to afford a, a home. 
we take it for granted so much how much credit um, impacts our lives. And I'd love if you can kind of speak a little bit to the poverty cycle and how access to credit can actually unlock people and um, push them forward. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I had the same idea as, as, as you that, uh, uh, you know, even if people can't borrow, they, they, they can still save money. And, and you, you know, if, if you are disciplined and, and habitual in, in saving, then you can uh, still make the investments that, that you, you would have done on a loan. Right. But um, when, when I started to delve into the problem in, in Bangladesh and India and Ghana and Uganda, all, all places where I've lived and, and studied, um, I, I, I saw that for cultural reasons, it's, it's often very difficult to save for cultural and, and also structural reasons. So on, on the cultural side, um, many developing countries have more communal societies where you're expected to help each other. And uh, there's also like very strong family networks. It, it, it's less of an individualistic culture that we find in the, the West. So in, in Uganda, for example, it's very common that uh, maybe your aunt got sick or your, your dad needs help and they, they drop by your house and, and you, you have to give them some money. Why? Because they also paid your tuition when you were a kid. They also bailed you out when, when you needed it. So when, when they need help, like you, you have to pay, right? So if there's any money in your house, it, it's not gonna sit there for long. Like, like at some point during the week, someone is gonna need it and you'll have to give it. So, um, uh, and, and in, in that way, it actually, um, it's more like a social safety net, which has kind of taken the place of a bank. So instead of like everyone getting their paycheck and putting it in the, the bank and withdrawing to meet their own needs, it's more like I'm paying into this communal fund by helping my aunt with her surgery, who's later going to uh, help me back in some other way. Um, then the, the structural reasons why it's hard to, to save is, um, uh, banks are, are, are inconvenient, you know, on, on my first trip to Uganda, uh, the, 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 the ATM um, machine I was using to withdraw money, it, it ate my card and I, I didn't get my card back. Uh, so I, I, I was pretty um, uh, skeptical of, of banks after that, but I, I found the, the mobile money system to be, to be quite uh, uh, effective and, and uh, um, much more foolproof. Um, and, and, and the fact that transactions can clear instantly, you know, um, uh, was really one of the big selling points, I think, for people to adopt it into their businesses. So uh, uh, going back to your, your question of, um, of, of, of credit, you know, so if, if people had access to credit now, they, they can get assets that are hugely, hugely productive. Um, for example, like we, we mostly focus on motorcycle loans for uh, taxi drivers or, or boda boda drivers. Um, you know, a, a typical boater driver spends 50% of his income just paying rent on, on, a, uh, on a motorcycle that he's never even going to own. So that's like the, the status quo where someone is having to, to rent their bike. So when you're losing 50% of your income uh, just to paying rent, like you, you never build equity in yourself or uh, have the ability to save because you're, you're, you're just like, you know, living on a paper thin margin. So the minute somebody gets ownership of an asset and, and, and develops the ability to start accumulating wealth, it, it, it's really a, a game changer. It puts them on a different trajectory altogether of, of uh, income. Wow, that was um, an amazing example about how this is all a self-perpetuating cycle, about how someone lends you money and then you feel compelled to give them money later. Um, that's a really good way to describe it. Yeah, yeah, there, there, it's, it's very much a, a cultural thing. Um, mm -hmm. it, 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 uh, it, it, it's, it's not like being in the US or in a Western country where uh, like when, when you have a financial problem, you, you deal with it yourself or, or like you, you go to a credit card company and borrow money. Like it, it, it's less common to lean on your family for these sorts of things. Whereas in, in many parts of, of Africa and Asia and Latin America, you, you, you would go to your family first um, and, and, and if they're unable to, to help you, then, then you would start, start looking elsewhere. Yeah. Well, I guess here we're able to rely on ourselves and deal things individually because we can. We've got that infrastructure built out. Um, and I think now would yeah. be a really good time to sort of pivot into talking a bit about Azark. So could you explain a little bit about the sort of origin story about Azark, how that came to be and how did you start to build out this uh, product? And you also had a pretty big pivot in the business story. So I think that'd be really interesting to hear about too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so um, the, the way that I first came to Uganda was uh, six years ago with that organization, Engineers Without Borders. Uh, at, at the time, I was a grad student at Columbia studying math. And um, uh, 
on, on my first trip out here, I, I met my local business partner, Eddie, who uh, at the time was the head of IT for Pilgrim Africa, uh, a, a local NGO with whom we were partnering on this uh, agriculture project to, to reach smallholder farmers. And so the, the interesting thing that Eddie and I saw was that um, even deep in the village, farmers had access to mobile phones and they were very comfortable making digital payments, uh, but, but the rest of the banking sector hadn't caught up yet. So these same farmers, when, when they were uh, applying for a loan, they would have to go all the way to town, fill out a paper application, wait eight weeks to get a response. And um, uh, even after receiving the loan, they, they would still have to go, go to town and, and make cash payments at the, the counter. So th this totally didn't make sense because the, the same farmers were already using mobile money to, to do their own personal business. You know, like what, when they pay suppliers or customers and, and all that, they were doing it digitally, which saves a lot of time and, and travel. Um, so we, we saw this opportunity to become the very first digital lender in, in Uganda, and uh, we, we were founded in June 2016. Um, and uh, so our, our, our initial business model was to give cash loans for uh, different business purposes, like, like, like agriculture or working capital for, uh, for retail shops and traders and suppliers. Um, the, the big learning that we had from the, the first few years of, of lending is that uh, cash is very, very fungible in, in a low or middle income household. Uh, so, you know, th there could be pent up needs that haven't been met over time, like um, maybe they, they haven't paid school fees for the kids or th th there could be a, a relative that needs medical treatment. So uh, as much as you might be giving a business loan, uh, some, some part of the money we were seeing would, would get used up on these, these other things, which made it hard to, to repay the loan. So uh, what we found to be much more impactful and, and successful was to lend in kind rather than in cash. So to, to lend in the form of, of assets, which are guaranteed to be productive um, and, and, and guaranteed to be income generating. So you know, uh, in, in our current focus of uh, motorcycle loans for boat drivers, um, it, it, we, we have found this to be much more uh, effective than cash lending because uh, the, the driver has to make a, a down payment on the motorcycle. So from the very beginning, he, he already is sharing the risk with us. He has skin in the game. Um, and we, we also know that um, uh, this motorcycle can't really be used for leisure purposes. I, I mean, somebody could just put fuel in it and ride around all day for fun, but you know, you would be just be wasting his money for, for nothing. So when you, when you get this motorcycle, the only thing you can really do with it is, is use it to earn money. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, in, in terms of, of like elevating a family and helping them get out of poverty, I, I think the first thing you have to do is raise their income. Then after that, all other problems can be solved. When you have money, you can put your kids in a good school, you can get the right medicine, you can move to a safer house and in, in a better neighborhood. Uh, but 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 money is just like usually the limiting factor. And I think to paint a bit of color around that, Kevin, Uganda, correct me if I'm wrong, is a country with the highest entrepreneurship in the world. So the highest number of people who are working for themselves. And if you think about mm -hmm. that, when your capital constraint, it's almost impossible. As, as Adam said before, you'd be stuck in a cycle of poverty if you're always renting, if you can never put that initial investment down to generate income for you. So I, I want to say that number again. 2.5 billion people around the world don't have access to credit. And as you said, and as the example shows, it's such a vaccine against poverty if given to people. And your repayment rates have been 96%, which shows that these people are willing to pay back their loans. It does, it's not that they can't pay back their loans. And it really has a tangible impact on their lives, which is why Adam and I love Azark so much. Yeah, for sure. Um, no, it, it, it's, it's such a, a vital and, and necessary step in, in development. And um, you know, why, why, my, why my business partners and I were attracted to, to this type of model is you know, we, we all had aspirations of, of, of uh, making some kind of dent in global poverty. You know, this is something that, that motivates all of the, the four of us. Um, but but we, we were interested in, in commercial and business solutions because we feel like uh, at, at some point when you're depending on philanthropy, the, the, money, right, the, the, the money might run out. Um, whereas if, if you can come up with a, a business solution to, to poverty, then, then it can actually sustain itself and, and last for hundreds of, of years. And so you know, we, we saw the opportunity to, to do that by uh, uh, using alternative data to underwrite people who, who don't have traditional credit profiles. Uh, but but find a way to make them bankable. Yeah. And, and that model of business for impact is something that Adam and I talk about a lot. Yeah. The, the scalable impact you can have through business. I, I think let's touch on that for a second. So why did you choose to make 
Azark a for-profit business as opposed to a not-for-profit? Yeah, um, so it, it was a conscious decision that, that we made. And I, I think um, this allows for the greatest scalability. Uh, so our, our vision is to become the, the biggest digital bank in, in Africa. And uh, for ASAC to be the, the conduit for trillions of dollars of investments to, to enter Africa. Um, you know, th there are a few NGOs that, that have reached to, to that scale. And uh, I, you know, um, if all goes well, I, I hope we'll, we'll even surpass their scale. And why? Because for the structural reason that uh, if, we're, if we're built as a for-profit company, then we, we, we won't always have to ask people for, for grants or donations. Like, like the, the money will come pouring in because people will see that you can make higher returns in, in Africa than you can in, in the, the West, while at the same time creating jobs for, um, in an economy that really needs it while at the same time doubling the, the income of water drivers who are living in poverty. So, you know, there, there, there are more socially impactful ways to, to allocate capital than, than the way people are, are currently doing it today. And, and uh, that, that's what we'd really like to bring to the forefront. It, it is possible to, to make money while doing good. And, um, uh, and anything, um, anything that targets bottom of the pyramid customers in, in Africa, uh, one has the potential to be usually commercially successful because there, there, there's, uh, you know, billions of people who are coming online now and, and, and Africa is home to the, uh, and it's going to be home to, um, for the next few decades uh, to, to the, the largest working class population. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of like investing in frontier markets, this is the perfect time to invest in, in an entire continent's infrastructure. So it, it's commercially, uh, um, uh, viable as, as well as being socially impactful. You know, at any time you're you're creating basic and essential services in, in a market that that has few of them, it, it, it is impactful by by default. You know, there are people that are able to access things that they couldn't in the past. That's amazing. Yeah, that just resonates with Sachin and I so much. Like Sachin said, we both thought about careers um, more in like the public sector and for organizations like the World Bank and the IMF. And we did come to that realization similar to you that the most impact does come from sustainable and scalable business models that can go somewhere set up and then they basically exist into perpetuity. Um, you've got money being reinvested into the business and by virtue of the product or service being sold, they're actually having a lot of impact. Um, so yeah, we definitely agree with you there. And, and I'd love to hear when you did pivot as arc and you sort of started to find product market fit, how did you see the growth change after that? What did you see the sort of change in the customer responses to the product once you sort of tweaked the business a bit? Yeah, for sure. There, there were so many things we learned from this pivot. Um, so in, in the past, we, we used to be a general purpose SME lender. So we, we would give cash for, for any type of business, whether it's agriculture or um, you're an importer, an exporter, or you, you have a barber shop in, in town. So um, w w one of the challenges of that model is that you, you have to be an expert in every industry. Like you, you have to know the risks that are specific to, to hairdressing versus pig farming versus corn farming. Um, and and uh, uh, so, so now, now by focusing on a particular type of asset like, like uh, 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 motorcycle loans, uh, it's a much smoother underwriting process because we, we know the mechanics of a motorcycle. We, we know how much money someone can generate using this asset per day. There's a huge widespread demand for motorcycles. So it, it's easier to make things systematic and, and streamlined uh, by, by removing some of the, the variables. So now, now uh, you know, we only have to understand one industry, which is the boat industry. And um, uh, we, we have understood it deeply by, by partnering with um, the, the, the local communities and, and organizations. And, and uh, so, so that, that's been one thing that has helped us to, to scale, basically by, by specializing in a particular product or, or approach. Um, and uh, the other thing that helped us is in, in the past when we were giving cash loans, uh, we, we used to give pretty big tickets uh, of, of between two and six thousand dollar loans on on average, and, and so to access loans of, of that size, uh, people had to give collateral like like a land title or a vehicle title or sometimes livestock. Um, and uh, so by by requiring uh, pre existing collateral, we, we were also limiting our market size as well. So now now with this approach of asset financing. Um, we're creating collateral through the loan itself. So by, by putting a GPS tracker in the motorcycle and insuring it, we're, we're creating a security for the loan and there's no like pre-existing assets that the person needs to have. 
Yeah, yeah that's, that's such a great iteration. Sorry, you go, Sachin. No, no, I was going to say the exact same thing. <laughs> like that is a business masterclass in iteration and finding product market fit. But what you said before is obviously you have this ambition to become this full stack bank, this full stack lender, as you said, the biggest bank in Africa or digital bank. What's the plan to get there? You're obviously operating one niche now um, and you have to learn and grow with each of your different niches. But what's the path to becoming the biggest digital bank in Africa? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I, I would definitely say that the, the macro factors are on our side. I, I, I mean, there are just so few companies in the world that, that are doing what, what we're, we're doing that, um, you know, even in, in, in Uganda, like when we're talking about motorcycle loans, the, the, the biggest player doesn't have more than 15% market share. So it, it's very, very fragmented. There's a lot of room for everyone to grow, honestly. Um, and, and, but, but why are we uniquely qualified to become the, the biggest um, digital bank? So we, we've been quite successful so far in, in getting partnerships with uh, the biggest ride hailing apps in the, the, the country, uh, which has really catapulted our, our growth. So one, one strategy that we use to acquire customers really cheaply is by plugging into the, the databases of these different ride hailing apps. So for example, um, uh, with this company called Safeboda, the, the biggest ride hailing app in Uganda, uh, they're the ones that had initially helped us to start the the, the Boda loan product. Um, so we're, we're able to to get uh, details like like how many trips has a safe Boda driver done, what are his average customer ratings. So we, we can use those financial and behavioral data points to, to really quickly assess somebody's uh, credit risk in, in lieu of traditional things like bank statements or having a, a titled asset in, in the, the borrower's name. Um, and so uh, by, by using the, these different international partnerships, we're, we're, we're also in, in discussions with a, 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 a large global bank um, for a, a, an on-ground distribution partnership. Um, uh, you know, the, the, these are some of the things that would help us to, to scale quickly across multiple countries. Plus the, uh, the underlying strength of our product is, is that we have the fastest turnaround time of, of three days in our industry. Um, we, we're, we're able to offer uh, automated um, secondary loan products like personal loans, fuel loans, smartphone loans, uh, things that are very difficult for a, a brick and mortar uh, lender to, to compete with because they do things the, the manual and traditional way. But by automating different parts of the lending process, we're able to solve many problems of our customers in, in, in a really fast and cheap way. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I think I just want to double click on that because that is technological progress that I don't think we've even seen in Australia. The ability to get a loan that quickly and have it backed by data is, is something almost new to the world. Is there any examples of anywhere that that's done well? Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh, it, it, it is becoming more common uh, both in the developing and, and developed world. So I, I, I think the, the benefit of, of this type of digital credit, it, it just removes frictions for, for everyone. Um, you know, by, by removing some of the, the traditional steps like, 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 like physically visiting someone's home or, or uh, talking to the client face-to-face, you're, you're reducing the cost of providing that credit. So it, it, it can theoretically become cheaper for the, the borrower. Um, I mean, in, in practice, that, that doesn't always happen. Like we, we do see uh, really, really high interest rates on, on some of the, from some of the digital lenders in, in Kenya. Um, uh, some of them can, can even charge 300% uh, APR, which is quite outrageous. Um, but, and, and there are things that need to be tweaked. Um, you know, so some of the digital lenders in, in Kenya, when, when they, 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 they have a very different model from us in, in, uh, in that they, they give unsecured consumer loans. So when, when you give uns, uh, unsecured consumer loans, you, you run into the problem that we had in the past, which is that people use it for, for any purpose. Like it might be used for tuition of the kids or medicine. Um, uh, uh, sometimes people actually take these digital loans to, to, to gamble or do sports betting, uh, w- w- which is quite risky and, and, and dangerous. So when, when people are using the money for un- unproductive purposes, they of course default in, in high rates. And so then that makes the, the lender uh, forced to charge a high interest rate to cover his losses, right? Um, so instead we, we take a different approach by, by focusing on, on business purposes. You know, what, what can we fund which will actually increase income for the, for the borrower? Um, and, and that drastically reduces risk, which allows us to uh, you know, make these other tech innovations to further bring down the cost of providing credit. So it's more like a virtuous circle by like focusing on the, the right uh, purposes of credit, you, you, you can manage everyone's risk and then we all get a, a cheaper product. 
amazing what a great product looks like it's just going to become a unicorn <laughs> after hearing this <laughs> and um oh, Kevin, <laughs> so we've, we've talked a lot a lot about the positives of sort of africa um and the growth trajectory but i think a lot of people like the ordinary person would be skeptical about investing into africa and i think that's understandable in the sense that a lot of like sort of innovative business models are not proven and so like what do you see is like maybe some of the risks about sort of uganda um and africa in general and do you think the risks that we've seen in the past, um, like some political stability, do you think that's going to change into the future? And do you think there's a more sort of stable element of Africa in the future? Yeah, for sure. Um, no, it, it, it's, a, it's a genuine concern. And I, I can give one, one example of this. Um, you know, uh, in, in the five years of doing this, this business, I, I've been rejected by more than 500 investors. And wow. um, uh, yes, uh, and, and I'm still not tired. I'm ready for more rejections. <laughs> um, and, and uh, you know, many of their, their common hesitations are that, like, the rule of law is weaker in, in Africa, uh, institutions are, are weaker, and, 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 and it's, it's true. Um, like, for example, the, the, the court system in, in Uganda, uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's slow. Like, we, we have uh, lawsuits that are still pending after three or four years, uh, and, and, and these are things that would seemingly be very cut and dry like you borrowed money you didn't pay it back we tried many times to get you to pay back the money and you haven't so you know now, now we have to sue you and, and and sell your land um but there are just so many steps involved and, and there's many uh points in the process where people can be compromised um and and, and so it, it it's it's not it's not a fast or easy process to win a a lawsuit in, in africa um, but uh, so when, when you compare this to, to the U.S., where uh, something like your credit score, it, it, it really matters. Um, it, it, it materially impacts your ability to, to get certain types of jobs or to buy a house, right? So, so people care about paying their, their credit card bills. Um, here, the, the Credit Reference Bureau is, is not that strong. Like, for example, we're, we're not able to, def, uh, to report to the Credit Reference Bureau when someone has defaulted. Um, uh, we, we, we can get some minimal uh, information about them by, by pinging them and, and uh, getting the, the credit report. But um, the, 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 the point is that um, despite the fact that we don't have all the same infrastructure here in, in Africa that we have in, in the West, there are ways to, to build it and, and we're, we're doing that. So, for example, um, by, by having a, a GPS tracker in the, the motorcycle, uh, they're, they're actually pretty sophisticated devices that, that can cut off fuel to the, to the engine. Um, so the, the moment that somebody stops paying, we can make the bike unusable. And, and, and this bike is what is uh, putting food on the, the table for the family every single day. And uh, for, for many bottom of the pyramid uh, customers who, who, who live day to day, week to week, they, they can't be without this motorcycle even for one day. It, 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 it means that they're not going to eat food that day. So, um, you know, uh, this simple thing of like being able to turn off the, the, the motorcycle, it, it would probably never be allowed in the, in the U.S. with privacy laws and, and uh, many other protections that consumers have. Um, uh, but the, the, in, in Uganda, like people, people will accept it because um, this is a way that they can access credit without having 10 years of bank statements, without having a lot of land titles. They just make an agreement that if I stop paying, you can turn off the bike. Fine. Um, and and that, that, that has lowered our risk uh, to even below what a U.S. lender faces. So to, to put some uh, numbers on that, um, uh, we, we have a default rate of 3% on our uh, motorcycle loans in Africa, whereas on auto loans in the U.S., which has a much stronger credit infrastructure and legal system, uh, the default rate is 5.8%. Is so wow. in a country with far weaker laws, we have actually outperformed U.S. lenders because uh, of these uh, tech innovations that allow us to secure assets and uh, to parse risk in a, in a non-traditional way. Yeah, and something that kind of seems a risk is understanding the local e ecosystem. And what I love about what you've done, Kevin, is you've, you've built it with Ugandans. I think it's very easy for us to come from Australia and America and come into a developed country and think we know what's going on, but really we know nothing. And I love how you've treated these people with dignity and kind of giving them the respect to, to build with the business. Because I think there's nothing worse than, you know, Americans coming into Uganda thinking their business model yeah. is going to work <laughs> and just ruining everything. Uh, totally. I, I mean, this is uh, something that I have believed very um, 
uh, fundamentally from, from the beginning that it, it's not possible to build a business in Africa without living in Africa. So even you know many of our competitors, their, their CEOs and founding teams do, do not live in Africa, which does not make any sense to me. Like how, how can you be solving African problems when you don't experience them? Um, you know, how, how can you think about uh, like which types of vehicles to finance if you have never sat in, in, in traffic jam in Kampala or, or Nairobi? Uh, how, how can you develop products for customers whose languages you, you don't speak and, and you can't hear from them directly? So, uh, you know, I, I made the decision to, to live in, in Africa long term. Uh, I'm, I'm learning three Ugandan languages. Um, wow. And uh, I, I, I think uh, to, to be to be successful in an African business, so you, you have to integrate with local society and, and, and you, you, you need buy-in from, from local people. Otherwise, it's, it's never really going to scale. Kevin, I can't, I can't express how happy it makes you, everything you say, because we've said this before, but businesses are like a Zark, a why Adam and I want to start a VC fund in the first place. This is like what gets us up every day, what motivates us for the podcast, for all these angel investments, or everything we're doing. It's to back people like you who are using you know, the most innovative technologies and using them to genuinely help people's lives. And you're doing it, you seem like you're doing it in the right way. And I think I only request it to you, it don't grow too fast because we want to raise your, we want to lead your series. <laughs> <So, laughs> yeah, just I'm to add on to that. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, like, seeing your dedication as well, like actually going to Uganda, living there, learning three languages, like that's just like a huge tick of the box to see a founder that is that committed. It's amazing to see. It's fun. I wouldn't trade this for any desktop in the world, even if they paid me a hundred times more. Like, there is nothing more interesting than this than I can imagine. In the past five years, I've never had two days in a row that are the same, ever. It's never happened. Um, and uh, before this, when when I had different desktops in in the U.S., like it, it, it was helpful for building my my CV and for gaining technical skills and building my my networks. But uh, th there's nothing like entrepreneurship. Uh, it, it just keeps you guessing and, 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 and uh, thinking faster every day. So it, it, it's addictive. <laughs> wow, that was, um, that was awesome to listen and to hear your passion. Extremely enjoyable. Um, on that note, we might start to head towards the quick fire round, um, change it up a little bit. And here, yeah. we're just going to ask you a bunch of questions. Um, and you've got around 30 seconds to answer each one. Are you ready? I'm ready. Awesome. What's one of your favorite books and why? Uh, I think uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I, I, I know it's a super common one. Like probably everyone says it, but uh, I, I, I read it when I was 15. Uh, it was recommended by a close friend. And, and I was so astounded by the fact that the, the book was so old by that point, but, but still very relevant to daily life. And, and, and it changed the way that I interact with people. Um, it, it helped me to, to, to think in the other person's shoes a lot more and try to find out what motivates and drives that person before I myself react. And uh, I, I'm still not very good at this, but uh, it, it is something that has helped me uh, every time I remember to find the business. <laughs> yeah, we haven't actually gotten that as an answer, but that's one of me and Sachin's favorite books. That's on both of our bookshelves. So we love that. Um, next question. What's one of your favorite podcasts and why? Uh, this one, obviously. Uh, <laughs> no, no, but, 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 but what, what inspires me about, about you guys is, is that you're, you're also you're, you're also entrepreneurs uh, and, and you're, you're, you're young and you have the energy and, and you've gotten very high profile guests on your, your podcast. Uh, I, I, I was very honored that you would even ask me to, to be part of it. Um, but but you're, you're, you're just hustlers. Like, you know, I, I know your podcast didn't even exist uh, a few years ago, but you, you magicked it out of thin air. And, and now it's, it's out there, it's in the world and it's making an, an impact. And uh, the, the fact that you've combined this with, with investing activities and, and like networking with different angels and NPCs it, it, it is, is really inspiring. I, I think it's, it's something that uh, can really help to, to build the, the ecosystem. And, and I, I, I hope that it, it helps other people as well. Wow, that's a really big wrap. Really, really appreciate those comments. Thank you. Thank you. Um, next question. What's, who's been an inspirational figure to you, um, but it's someone that you've never met before? Oh, man. Good question. Uh, okay. I, I, I could have said Mohammed Yunus, but, but uh, the, the founder of Grameen Bank, but, but I did actually meet him in, in Kampala. Um, Subtle flex. Yeah. I, <laughs> 
I, I, I was very lucky. I, 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 I sneaked into this event at the, the last minute and, and uh, the, it, it, I was the only Bangladeshi person there. So I, I caught his attention by speaking Bangla. Um, but, uh, okay, someone that I, I have never met before. Um, uh, sorry, I, 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 I'm blanking. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go back to, to Mohammed do this. Why, why, why I find him inspiring is because um, uh, before before Grameen Bank, Bangladesh was known for famine and natural disasters, and for having been through a, a really bloody independence war. Like not things that we would like to be known for on the, the global stage. So because of his work. Um, People now often think of microfinance when, when they hear the word Bangladesh rather than famine, poverty, and these other things. Like it, it really changed global perception of the, the country. And, and, and that's something that, that I'd like to do with my, with my life as well, um, is it, to, to, to change the fortunes of a, of a country or, or a continent. And, and, and that's how I think someone's legacy can be remembered forever. Yeah, what a man. He's definitely someone we've got to get onto the podcast as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> next question what's one of your favorite hobbies outside of work i i love cooking uh, i spend an inordinate amount of time cooking and i do it really slowly i pick all my ingredients carefully i i, I like the chemistry of it and and um, uh in, in bangladeshi culture hospitality is is the measure of uh of a human being and and um it, it, it it's uh you know you're you're judged by how welcome people feel in your home and, and uh, whether they had a good time when they came to your house. And these are things that have been ingrained into me since I was a kid. So my favorite thing to do on Saturdays is cook a huge pot of butter chicken and uh, invite everyone I know. And, and uh, uh, yeah, just, just spend the day, like hanging out at home, eating and, and, and talking. That's beautiful. Kevin, you, Kevin, you seem like the best guy ever. They say he's listen up. Like, <laughs> this is a family you're backing. And yeah. I think, when, when me and Adam come to Uganda to visit you, um, you're definitely going to be cooking because we can only cook chicken and rice, the same thing. We just cook the same meal every time. Oh, man, you're, you're, you're definitely invited. Uh, we'll we'll, we'll, we'll uh, barbecue a goat for you guys when you come. Beautiful. We can get a couple tips from you. Um, yeah. Kevin, this has been an awesome episode. And I think it's honestly been one of the most important episodes we've done to date. Because we can talk all we want about business changing the world, but you're doing that. You're building that right now. And I think for all the audience listening that have this inclination that the world isn't an equal place, but don't feel like they can do anything about it, investing in companies like Azark is doing that. You're making, you, you're having the opportunity to make profit and you're investing in business that's helping people in poverty. Like I, the reason I struggle to say that is it just, it's just so it's the marriage of two of the best things in the world and what people should be aspiring towards. And this is an idea we want to share over and over again. Yeah. I, 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 you know, not that I'm biased in any way, but I totally agree with Sachin. Everyone should invest in. <laughs> I'm, I'm not biased. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. When, when, when there's, um, if you guys are raising again on any public platform, we'll share on our podcast page. Um, and yeah. you know, if anyone's interested on the back of this, just message me and Adam and we can just keep you in the loop for any further Azark raises. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that Sachin, do you want to go ahead with the last question? Yeah, I'm actually really fascinated to hear what you have to say about this, Kevin. But for all the 18 to 25-year-old future leaders of the world listening, what would be your one piece of advice to them? Oh, man. Um... Uh, okay, I, 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 am still, you know, early on the, the journey of life, so I, I can't say that I have a lot of wisdom to, to share. Um, but uh, something I've been thinking about lately is the importance of um, introspection and and reflection and, and and just trying to understand yourself. And and sometimes uh, it it uh, okay like like during the first lockdown last year. I, I was completely alone for, for three months. I, the only people I interacted with was the security guard of my compound and the people in the, the supermarket. Um, and uh, that gave me a lot of time to, to really, you know, just think about life and, and, and myself and how do I fit into it. And what, what, when I think back like 10 years when I was in, in university, I, I, I know myself much better now and, and, and it helps with everything. You know, like when you, when you understand your tics and your own behaviors and your patterns, 
it, it, it makes the, the daily challenges of life more solvable because you know that, oh, okay, you know, I, I, I faced this before and I've overcome this before, so I'll, I'll do it again. Or, oh, you know, this thing is happening, I'm reacting in a certain way, maybe this isn't the best way to react. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think um, uh, introspection is, is really important and, and, and it, when, when you do it, you find that your relationships with people improve too. That's awesome. And, and no one's ever said that on the podcast before. And it's such an important point because we live in a time when we have infinite inputs. We read an infinite number of blogs, podcasts, we have messages going back all the time. But sometimes you just need to let those things settle and like think about who you are as a person. And it's confronting. Like I've definitely had this in lockdown where I've had some things come up which haven't come up before because I've been a lot by myself for a long period of time. And you just have that pause to reflect. But it is so important. So I'm really glad you said that. Yeah, I, I think that's really unique and quite profound because most of our guests are saying something along the lines of go out, go out into the world, grab opportunities, but you're sort of saying in a sense, sit back and really think deeply about who you are. And I think it's a testament of your character that you've actually sat down and thought about your early experiences and what you're passionate about. So you've obviously done the work of introspection, introspection and you've sort of put that into your own actions. So yeah, that's awesome to hear. I was just going to say, thanks so much for coming on the show, Kevin. This has been awesome. Yeah, no, very, very honored and happy to have this opportunity. And and um, uh, I, I I have an aunt listening uh, listening in from Australia, so she'll she'll be very happy to to. to see this. <laughs> Yeah, awesome. Yeah, thank you so much, Kevin. I think like the biggest thing that this podcast did for me, is obviously we learn a lot about Africa, but I think we learn a lot about your character as well, just in the sense that you're so deeply passionate about this and committed. And I think like, obviously, just just thinking about us as investors, it makes us a lot more com confident because when you're an early stage investor, you are really looking towards the founder of the team. You're looking for their passion, their motivation. Are they committed? Um, and I think we like very obviously saw all of those qualities today. Um which is amazing. And yeah, we definitely want to come over to Uganda at some point, cook up that barbecue. You totally should. <laughs> you're, you're, you're very welcome here anytime. We, we can see the source of the Nile River. We can uh, uh, go trekking in the rainforest to see gorillas in the wild. Um, we, we, we have every big animal and they cost uh, half the money that you would pay in Kenya. So uh, you, you should come to Uganda. <laughs> oh God, that sounds like too much fun. Cool. Well, awesome. um, on that note, yeah, thanks, Kevin. Great episode.